Thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Walter. And I'm Michael Watson. In this episode, we look behind the battle over President Trump's judicial nominations. This is the Influence Watch podcast. If everything goes according to script, the U.S. Senate will confirm three of President Donald Trump's nominees to the federal appeals courts this week. That means in total, the Senate will have confirmed 12 of the president's nominees at that level, more than former President Barack Obama saw confirmed in his first year in office. But behind the pomp, circumstance, and talking points are many advocacy groups on the left and right seeking to influence the direction of the courts, potentially for decades. The White House has consulted with Leonard Leo of the conservative-leaning Federalist Society and also taken support from Judicial Crisis Network, an advocacy group, to find candidates whose judicial philosophy stresses the need to follow the original meaning of legislative texts. Meanwhile, on the other side of the political spectrum, groups like the American Constitution Society and the Alliance for Justice, which believe in a so-called living constitution that changes over time, are encouraging Senate Democrats to stonewall Trump's nominees. That's ironic because the same group supported former Senate Democratic leader Harry Reid's so-called nuclear option, which abolished the Senate's ability to filibuster debates over lower court nominees. The stonewalling effort has also received support from the American Bar Association, which is accused by conservatives of partisan bias in its ratings of judges. Uh, Mike, tell us a little bit about these competing philosophies. Sure. Uh, So there are generally two major schools of judicial thought. Uh, There's the living constitution, which is often called loose constructionism, which is generally the view of liberals and judges on the left. Uh, What the core principle of of the living constitution view, of the loose constructionist view, is that the constitution has a sort of social meaning beyond the text, and that that social meaning changes over time, and that judges should use the changing social meaning over time in their interpretation of the law and of the Constitution. Uh, Judges can use the views of contemporary society when they're interpreting what was meant by uh, laws and constitutional texts that were written many, many years ago. Uh, The kind of most clumsy way of expressing this was when uh, Fox Media's Ezra Klein many a couple years ago tweeted about the Constitution being 100 years old and therefore it's silly. <laughs> um, obviously, this is generally the view of liberals who generally want to change things more so than leave them the same. Uh, to use an example in how, of how this uh, loose constructionism works in practice, a lot of the sort of what conservatives deride is this as the new rights that are created by judicial activism are read in through the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, uh, which was written back just after the Civil War, uh, passed in an attempt to ensure that the freed slaves, the new freedmen, uh, the new citizens who had been liberated by the Civil War and by the 13th Amendment, would have political rights. Obviously, that did not occur in practice because of very many things that are an entirely different conversation. But what the loose constructionist does is sees that there are more groups in society that are supposed to be treated identically, and therefore equal protection of thinking, the equal protection clause, should be expanded to cover them. And then on the other hand, you have the originalist or the strict constructionist view which is generally the view of conservatives. Uh, the 
Now, there are many different schools of originalism. If you pull aside a conservative lawyer, he could go into much more detail than I can. Uh, but the general idea is that when constitutional texts or when laws or when constitutional amendments were written, they had a meaning that was understood at the time. Uh, the cool legal term of art is original public meaning. Uh, an example of this uh, is the Second Amendment, the, the, right to keep, the right to keep and bear arms. Conservatives believe, uh, originalists, strict, con strict constructionists believe that because there's a whole bunch of evidence that at the time of the passage of the amendment that the right of the people to keep and bear arms clearly and without real question meant the citizens and not some organized government-created militia, then that's what it means, and that you can't change that understanding unless you actually go through the process laid out in the Constitution to amend the Constitution. Yep. Now, uh, the folks who believe in the living Constitution even take that so far as to say that uh, other countries' laws should influence the way that we interpret our Constitution. Is that right? Uh, some do. Uh, some do. Uh, there are there is a debate uh, among among liberal legal scholars about to what extent other countries' laws inform that social meaning, inform that contemporary thinking that can modify the meaning of the legislative text over time. Uh, the extent, you know, there are enough originalists that that isn't a a super common view in the law, at least so far as I am aware. Yeah. I think some Supreme Court justices sitting occasionally do that, but of course they then have been slammed by the other side for pointing out that, okay, does that mean that we're going to have the far more restrictive of abortion laws that Sweden, for instance, has? Or are we going to uh, decide that homosexuality should, be, uh, should receive the death penalty as still other countries have? So it's... Uh, uh, that's that's quite a picking and choosing thing, but I guess the bottom line is the question of uh, are we supposed are judges supposed to keep the Constitution in tune with the times, or are they supposed to try to keep the times in tune with the Constitution? That's not an unreasonable short way of <laughs> short way of thinking about it. Yeah. Well, let's talk a bit about some of the folks uh, who are up before the Senate for consideration this week. Uh, tell us about them. Sure. Uh, so the Senate calendar, uh, which is controlled by Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, brought up three of the president's nominees who had made it to the floor. Uh, on the floor today is a gentleman by the name of James Ho uh, of Texas, who was nominated to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, he is the former Solicitor General of Texas under uh, Greg Abbott, who is now the governor but was Attorney General at the time. He is a former uh, law clerk for Associate Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, he is 44. We will get to why ages are important in our later conversations. Um, and interestingly, uh, he was born in Taiwan uh, and is the second uh, prominent Taiwanese-born person nominated by Donald Trump. Of course, the other is Elaine Chao, the Secretary of Transportation. Yesterday, uh, too much rejoicing among conservative Washington, D.C. Twitter, because he is a Twitter personality of note. Uh, another Texan, Don Willett, uh, was confirmed by a 50-47 vote. Uh, he is, or, you know, effective until he is sworn in, 
uh, a justice of the Texas Supreme Court. Uh, he is 51, uh, and a lot of the uh, sort of libertarian, especially on the libertarian side of originalism and of the right, really like his jurisprudence. Uh, yep. But Senator Al Franken uh, and he, on the other hand, have not been as friendly. Uh, no, Senator Al Franken, soon to be not Senator Al Franken. Soon? <laughs> well, soon if you believe him. Mm-hmm. Uh, during Willett's confirmation, confirmation hearing, uh, both uh, outgoing, we think, Senator Al Franken and uh, Senator from Vermont Patrick Leahy blasted uh, ju- uh, then justice, now judge Willett, for a couple of jokes that he made on Twitter, which were maybe a little intemperate, but you know, not evidence of actual. Uh, they were trying to make it out that these were actual evidence of discrimination, which many people who he has worked with have come out and said is absolute bunk. Uh, and then, of course, Al Franken, uh, it was revealed, was caught up in the pervnado, as we mentioned last week. Yes. So, and what about uh, Stephen Grass? Uh, so on Tuesday, uh, the Senate confirmed Stephen Grass, a former chief deputy attorney general of the state of Nebraska, uh, notable for arguing in uh, a case before the Supreme Court, uh, Stenberg v. Carhart, which attempted to defend Nebraska's ban on partial birth abortion. Uh, he lost that case. And, uh, however, a later case on the federal law uh, which currently prohibits the practice, was upheld. The Supreme Court did say that that was okay. So there was some technical difference between the laws and also a change in the composition of the court. Yep. Now, uh, the, uh, the Grass nomination uh, takes us into our specialty here, which is the, uh, the groups trying to influence this public policy process. Uh, in his case, uh, the American Bar Association has played an important role. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Uh, Grass had been found unanimously not qualified by the American Bar Association. Uh, And the only reason that people mentioned why they did that uh, was because he wrote a law review article in 1999 in which he argued that it was not the responsibility of lower court judges to get ahead of the Supreme Court's precedents, especially on abortion. Uh, The American Bar Association took that to mean that he would uh, rule against precedent, that he would rule against precedent even when he is bound by precedent as a lower court justice. What do I mean by that? The Supreme Court set, when the Supreme Court makes a decision, that decision and that reasoning is binding on every, every court in the nation. The appeals courts, if they make a decision, that's binding on all the district courts in their region. So if it's the, uh, if it's the D.C. Circuit Court, it's binding on the D.C. District Courts. If it's uh, the Second Circuit, it's binding on New York uh, and a couple of other states. But it's not necessarily binding on the Ninth Circuit, which is in California. So as a lower court judge, you can't overturn the Supreme Court. You can set precedent where the Supreme Court precedent is unclear, which is why circuit courts are important. But where the Supreme Court precedent is clear, the most you can say is, I think the Supreme Court precedent is wrong, but I must rule in favor of the Supreme Court precedent because it is my job. Uh, So Grass said that 
if the Supreme Court says that I have to rule in a certain way about, as that a judge has to rule in a certain way about an abortion-related precedent, I just have to apply the letter of that, not go beyond it and expand and already what many originalists argue is overexpanded uh, uh, line of, of cases on abortion anyway. Uh, the American Bar Association argued that that was an example of, quote, bias and lack of open-mindedness. Now, what is the American Bar Association? It is a voluntary membership organization of lawyers, uh, and it is primarily funded by the dues paid by lawyers. Lawyers tend to lean pretty liberal. Uh, a study by Verdant Labs found that people in the legal industry broke about three to one Democrat versus Republican. Uh, and this gives it a, an incentive to represent its members who are mostly liberal, and it represents them in fairly liberal ways. The, uh, the resolutions that the American Bar Association passes at its convention tend to be fairly, li- tend to be fairly liberal. And there's the, also a, there's also an element of self-interest here, right? Uh, conservatives are generally thought of as preferring less government. Liberals as preferring more government. And, of course, the way the government grows is through laws and regulations, which can only be dealt with by paying good sums of money to... To, to attorneys. Uh, there, there, yeah, there's certainly an element of that, where uh, the more the government does, the more compliance... Uh, and who, who runs your compliance department? Attorneys. Um, in its assessments of judges, uh, which the ABA is, insists are very neutral, uh, they have long been suspected of having a bias in favor of Democratic nominees in rating their qualifications. There was a 2012 study of nominations from 1977 to 2008, uh, and it found, and I'm quoting directly from the abstract, evidence of bias against Republican nominees in the ABA's ratings. You know, there, there, there's clearly evidence of bias here. Yep. The other thing that uh, I would want our viewers to know about is there is an even more obscure way that the ABA uh, wields enormous power, and that is on the level of higher education. Uh, the ABA is the only accreditor of law schools in the country, and l- every part of higher education is always nervous and easily swayable by its accreditors because if you're not accredited, your students can't get federal loans, you can't get uh, various other types of federal funding. Accreditation is a huge stick. Oh, and, and, and in addition to that, if your degree is not accredited, then the state will not recognize it in, yes, many, most, in, many, in many states. Yeah, most states in the country, you're right, most states in the country won't let you even apply to join the bar in their state if you don't have a degree from uh, an ABA-accredited law school. And uh, when I was in the uh, past administration uh, and worked a bit with the Department of Education, the higher ed part of the department was very disturbed about uh, the way that the ABA would lean on schools to have uh, what many considered uh, reverse racial discrimination in both hiring and in admissions. Uh, so the ABA was an, was arguably the worst actor of the various groups uh, that have this kind of accreditation control, and I would just throw out as well that it, this is a this is a power that the ABA is not in our lifetime ever likely to lose, 
because the laws, doubtless written by mostly lawyers, since the vast majority of members of Congress are lawyers, but the laws governing accreditation um, state that a law school or any other school can't be accredited by two accreditors. So if you wanted to be an entrepreneur and start your own counter to the ABA accreditation, no law school could actually allow you to accredit it along with the ABA. So it's a, the, the public, for the economists who like public choice theory, it's sort of their worst kind of nightmare. Sure, ab- ab- absolutely you get that. Uh, the government working on behalf of private interest uh, in this case, even though it's a osten- ostensibly not-for-profit organization, uh, many of the private interests are not-for-profit organizations. Um, but so once they, uh, the Senate Republicans saw the, the ABA's rating, uh, uh, they blasted. They, they blasted the group, uh, and in, it was blasting from all fronts of the party. Uh, Jeff Flake, no friend of the president, called it blatantly political. Um, uh, ben Sass, also not a particular fan of the president, but also from Grass's home state of Nebraska, Uh, went on quite the rant, quote, the ABA is a liberal advocacy organization. That's not a bad thing. You can be a liberal advocacy organization. What's not okay is being a liberal advocacy organization and be masquerading as a neutral, objective evaluator of these judicial candidates. Um, That's a great quote for our show because, of course, one of the central things that we're trying to do here is to show how there are groups fighting on both sides. And one of the unfair advantages I think the left sometimes has is Groups advocating on the left side of the spectrum get to pretend that they're mainstream and non-ideological and have no access to grind, whereas the conservative groups are funded by some bad funder or they're trying to influence policy. And the answer is, this is Washington. Everybody's trying to influence policy, and there's always groups on both sides. Right. This is a, this is, this is a game. It's played. Everybody plays the game. And for a long time, uh, the, the groups on the left... Uh, especially have gotten away with being able to say that we don't we represent the public interest we represent the little guy when actually they have established interests too in this case the trial bar Uh, or to be mean about it the ambulance chasers if you want to be particularly mean about it the ambulance chasers Uh, and so republicans of course then moved on grass's nomination anyway uh, John Cornyn, the uh, majority whip, said, when they've got an axe to grind, politically or ideologically, I don't think we should give that any weight. Yep. Uh, and they didn't. Uh, Mr. Grass is now Judge Grass. <laughs> yes. Well, that's that's the latest news on this front. But let's uh, let's pull back for a second and tell us a bit about the history behind the advocacy on both sides here. Sure. Uh, so advocacy on the judicial in the judicial space goes back at least to the 70s. Uh, the Alliance for Justice, uh, whom we will get to in, in a little bit, um, was formed in 1979 and led attacks on republic on Republican judicial nominees and continues to do that to this day, which we'll which we'll get to. Um, and the Trump administration is not unusual in using nonprofit advocacy uh, to build support for and to uh, look into vet its judicial nominees. The Obama administration, uh, when uh, conservative associate justice of the Supreme Court Anthony Scalia died in February 2016, uh, the Obama administration entities aligned with the Obama administration created a nonprofit, which they called the quote Constitutional Responsibility Project, uh, to get 
the Senate Republican majority at the time to hold hearings and then ultimately confirm District of Columbia Circuit Court Justice, uh, Judge Merrick Garland, whom President Obama had nominated for the Supreme Court. Uh, and that, that constitutional responsibility project was headed by Obama's 2012 deputy campaign manager, a woman by the name of Steph Cutter. Um, obviously, it didn't work. Uh, that that seat was left was left open. Uh, Garland's uh, Donald Trump ended up winning the 2016 presidential election. Garland's nomination was allowed to lapse. Uh, I remember a quick instance some years back when the veil was pulled back on the way the Democrats uh, dealt with nominations because uh, a Republican staffer on the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, discovered that he could easily get into the Democrat staff's uh, computer files on their shared network. Uh, and whatever you think of the ethics of that, what he found was that uh, nobody was nominated at any level without a poll of all of the left-wing advocacy groups in this area. Sure. So what the, what the left has been trying to make a big stink of big stink out of is the influence of the Federalist Society, which is principally a membership organization of conservative and libertarian-leaning lawyers and legal scholar types. Uh, they claim something on the order of 60,000 members, I believe. Uh, they receive m uh, some of their funding comes from member dues and uh, conference fees and the like, but quite a bit of it comes from your traditional conservative foundation supporters, uh, Mercer Family Foundation, the Sarah Scaife Foundation, Bernie Marcus, who is the longtime chairman of Home Depot, uh, his foundation, the Searle Freedom Trust, the Charles Koch Foundation, the Lyndon Harry Bradley Foundation, all have provided support to the Federalist Society because of how important the judicial policy space is. Uh, for a long time, uh, conservatives have believed that, you know, who cares if we win elections because liberal judges, loose constructionists, uh, living constitutionalists will simply concoct out of the zeitgeist and the spirit of the times that our law is invalid. Uh, and that, in the 2016 election, played a major role in how Donald Trump ended up winning uh, among, in the exit polling, he won decisively people who said that a key determinator of their vote was judges and who would especially fill uh, Antonin Scalia's seat on the Supreme Court, which is now Neil Gorsuch's seat on the Supreme Court. Um, Federal Society is a big advocate for originalist judicial theory. Uh, and the left and media have focused on the involvement of longtime executive vice president of the Federal Society, Leonard Leo, who is an advisor to or is an informal consultant to President Trump on nomination and selection in the judicial space. Uh, U.S. News ominously called him the judicial puppet master. Business Insider called him the most powerful recruiter in the world. Uh, in practice, he's just a guy who—he's a guy who knows stuff about the law and about what to look for in a good lawyer, uh, and what to look for in a good prospective judge. 
Yep. The uh, well, I, I confess I have some uh, friends at the Federalist Society, and there's a reason that they uh, that they have such a large membership uh, and uh, and get taken seriously. Um, anybody who went to their website and looked at the conferences that they hold around the country at law schools and elsewhere uh, would see that they are scrupulous about having the very highest level of uh, debate. That is, say, if you go to a Federalist Conference, if you didn't know it was a conservative group, you might not figure it out because you would see vigorous advocates on both sides of the political spectrum uh, fighting over every issue that is in the courts. I, I, believe, it, I believe it came out that in, during the confirmation hearings over uh, now Associate Justice Gorsuch, that now Associate Justice Elena Kagan, who was appointed by President Obama and is a pretty, uh, pretty liberal justice uh, with a fairly consistent living constitutionalist view, uh, participated in a debate at the federal that was sponsored by the Federalist Society. Uh, and the Democrats were, of course, trying to say that these are these are extremists who want to, you know, make women barefoot and pregnant and all that nonsense that they spew about anybody. Uh, anybody on the right, um, but and that that was brought up as evidence that no, these are this is a serious intellectual society, a serious uh, intellectual program uh, that wishes to grapple with the important philosophical and practical debates about the Constitution and about uh, American law and policy. Yeah, and I would say to, to pull back the broader point, given the, a lot of the craziness that we now see on college campuses and elsewhere in America, that the capacity to sit down with somebody with whom you profoundly disagree and have a thoughtful argument rather than a shouting match uh, or violence is perhaps a very good thing uh, that needs to be encouraged. But let's switch to the other side of the spectrum now. Uh, tell us a bit more about the left-wing groups that are pushing back against the conservative nominees that people like Leonard Leo helped to, uh, the president to select. Sure. The, uh, so the liberal groups find themselves in, in, an unpleasant, in an unpleasant scenario because they have taken away the strongest manner to, quote-unquote, resist, uh, and it was, it was mostly their own doing. Uh, during the second term of President Barack Obama, a lot of these groups really pushed hard for what was called the nuclear option. Uh, then Senate Democratic leader Harry Reid, who was the majority leader from, 2013, uh, from 2007 to 2015, basically used a parliamentary trick to rule that actually you can change the rules of the Senate with a simple majority, even though there are rules in the Senate that call for more than a majority. To change the rules. To, yeah, they call for more than, a, more than a majority to change the rules, more than a majority to do something, most importantly. And as a result, he made it that instead of needing 60 votes to cut off debate and proceed to a vote on a judge, you only needed 51 or 50 in the vice president. As a result, because Republicans have more than 50 in the vice president right now, the Democrats' ability to block Republican nominees, either because they don't think they're qualified, yeah, nobody really gets denied for that, um, or because they profoundly disagree with their judicial philosophy, or because, oh, oh boy, that guy might be a Supreme Court nominee, nominee here, the Federalist Society types will wave the bloody shirt of George W. Bush nominee Miguel Estrada, who was denied a vote on a filibuster to a seat, I think it was on the D.C. Circuit. It was, yeah. Um, 
and Democrats were terrified of him because he was a he was an immigrant from Latin America and was widely seen as a shortlister for a potential Supreme Court vacancy if he got his seat on the D.C. Circuit. And the prospect of voting against the first Hispanic nominee to the high court was something that gave them the shivers. It was something, something that gave, gave them the shivers. In the short run, it paid off. They got to nominate, the, the President Obama got to nominate Sonia Sotomayor, the first Hispanic nominee to the Supreme Court. Democrats thought they had won that, but unfortunately, by burning everything down, they cleared the way now uh, because the, Demo- you know, the Democrats for a long time believed they would never lose another election, made many short-sighted, many short-sighted decisions, none potentially more short-sighted than clearing away the filibuster, allowing a Republican president and a Republican Senate majority to appoint essentially at will. There's also talk a bit about the Alliance for Justice. That's another one of the powerful groups. Sure, the they're 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 the sort of principal group that pushed this uh, and pushed this. They're the the longest the longest left left of center living constitutionalist advocacy group. Uh, they go back to the Reagan and H. W. Bush Supreme Court fights. They uh, were one of the groups that led the attack. The ultimately successful. Uh, effort to block the nomination of uh, originalist Judge Robert Bork, uh, who was appointed to the vacancy that would later be filled by Anthony Kennedy, and then also dug up the uh, highly suspect, I think we can call the attacks on Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh, Those were not successful. Thomas has now sat successfully as a a justice of the Supreme Court for 26 years. and they continue to do this, uh, this opposition, sort of shoddy opposition research on Republican nominees. Earlier this year, uh, a I believe she was Notre Dame law professor Amy Coney Barrett was appointed to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. And the Democrats dug up this attack based on a law review article that she had written that they had misinterpreted <laughs> Um, claiming about where she ruminated on what happens if a judge is bound by precedent to rule contrary to his or her religion. And she ruled ultimately that you have to, the the law is a sufficient good that you, you must rule as you must rule. The Alliance for Justice took a sentence she wrote there completely out of context, uh, and that ended up in the hands of Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein, who then suggested that, quote, the dogma lives loudly in you uh, in what appeared for all the world to see to be an attack on now Judge Barrett's uh, Catholic faith. Yes. Scalia was asked occasionally about the same sort of issue, and what he said uh, was, if I felt I had to, uh, if I felt that uh, I could not be a good Catholic and follow a precedent, I would resign. That is to say, I would not overrule, I would not take it upon myself to change the law because I don't like it or agree with it. If I had such a dreadful conflict, I would simply resign uh, so that I would not uh, put, make the law a plaything of mine, but I also would uh, respect the demands of my conscience. Um, so the, uh, the Alliance for Justice has also accused uh, Trump and the Republicans of uh, packing the federal courts. Can you say a little about that? Sure. So the number of judges that there are 
from the Supreme Court on down is set by just laws. It's not set by the Constitution. The nine justices was established shortly after the Civil War. It's just stayed that way by convention and by longstanding practice. In the 1930s, the Supreme Court was ruling against some of Franklin Roosevelt's later New Deal programs, uh, most notably the National Recovery Act, which was a pretty statist, central planning uh, plan for the national economy. Supreme Court struck it down after a business owner challenged it. This made FDR very, very angry, and after he was reelected, he proposed adding justices to the Supreme Court, which naturally he would appoint. That made people not happy. Uh, arguably contributed to the New Deal coalition. Even the Democrats retained the nominal control of the House of Representatives. The New Deal coalition's majority was strongly reduced, and the conservative coalition of Republicans and the sort of dissident Southern Democrats, which kind of put the brakes on the New Deal programs, uh, took, took, ended up taking the majority in the 1938 uh, congressional elections because the public opposed the idea that Roosevelt was going to add all these justices for his partisan political interests. This came to be known as court packing. And so whenever uh, a, someone proposes that the courts should be expanded or, con- or contracted for what appears to be a partisan interest, the opponents of the maneuver will call it court packing. What the liberals and Alliance for Justice have taken to doing there are currently over 100, I believe, vacancies in the, federal, in the federal court system. Many of them were facilitated by Senate Republicans in the second, ter- the second half of President Obama's second term by leaving a lot of seats vacant. Uh, so liberals have taken to calling when President Trump nominates originalist conservatives to the already existing vacancies on already existing courts have taken to calling it court packing as just a partisan political cheap shot. Yep. Now, of course, whereas court packing ought to mean adding seats and and the rest of the way— Manipulating the the structure of the courts rather than just appointing justices who follow your broad judicial philosophy. Yep. um, Although it's worth pointing out that while FDR failed uh, to get to— to add justices because the whole country rebelled against that um, that kind of uh, excess of power. Uh, on the other hand, there was the famous switch in time that saved nine, where one of the uh, sitting justices who had been striking down New Deal legislation uh, for violating the Constitution, which I think there was a pretty strong argument for saying it did, um, uh, he switched his vote on uh, one of these crucial major cases and that greatly lessened the president's desire uh, because he realized, okay, I now have I now have a working majority right, on the Supreme right. Court, so he, I don't have to he change. Didn't, he didn't 
the the yep. urge the urgency for the political injury that he was taking had gone away. Yes. Uh, in the in the words of Michael Barone, uh, all process arguments are insincere, including this one. <laughs> yes. Well, the uh, before we turn to another group, uh, let's the last thing on the Alliance for Justice I should ask you about is who funds them, because of course. When conservative funders fund a group, that supposedly taints the group. So who's tainting our Alliance for Justice friends? Big liberal foundations. The Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation, named in honor of investor Warren Buffett's, now I believe, deceased wife. Uh, the Ford Foundation, which is the a left-wing uh, philanthropy that has existed for a very long time. Uh, are they a century old? No, but they're they're probably. I think they would uh, round up to a century, round close up to, to round, uh, round up to close to a century. Uh, the George, the network of philanthropies associated with uh, liberal billionaire financier George Soros, the Open Society Foundations, and the Foundation to Promote Open Society, uh, NEO Philanthropy, which is a big liberal convening of funders and donor advised fund. Uh, and then you also have other liberal policy groups. You have labor unions, uh, SEIU, National Education Association, Communications Workers of America. And then uh, you also have the, the sort of policy groups. Uh, Natural Resources Defense Council has handed them uh, small sums, but you know, tens yep. of thousands of dollars. And why would, uh, why would unions, you're one of our top union experts, why would unions be uh, keenly interested in judges? Well, they will find out in January when a case is argued before the Supreme Court uh, over the ability of unions to charge non-members who do not agree with the union's political programs uh, mandatory representational fees. There's a, the case is Janus v. American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, AFSCME. Uh, the public employee union are... The current president of the Supreme Court is that a public employee union, even though it's negotiating with the government, so it's very hard to disentangle these two categories, can charge non-members of the union who are represented by the union as part of the union's exclusive representation privilege, which the union asked for, that the costs germane to collective bargaining, the costs of adjudicating grievances, negotiating the contract, representing the bargaining, the, the bargaining unit is the group of employees that the union represents, representing the bargaining unit in litigation, that that can be charged, that all that kind of stuff can all be charged to non-members, but they're explicitly political activities, lobbying on legislation, for instance, uh, cannot be charged to these non-member employees. And this harkens back to, uh, to Thomas Jefferson uh, at the, uh, when the Constitution, time of the Constitution being written, uh, arguing that to compel a man uh, to furnish money to support opinions with which he disagrees is tyranny. And I suspect that that is exactly what the Supreme Court is likely they, to they, rule. It is, there was a, a previous case that was heard in 2015, 2016, uh, on almost exactly the same grounds that split 4-4 with the ninth being the vacancy created by Antonin Scalia's death. Uh, so this is almost a rehearing, uh, and it is widely suspected that Justice Gorsuch will find that there is no way to disentangle, as among other people, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, no no enemy of American the American working man, um, not traditionally thought of as an enemy of the American working man, uh, 
once wrote to uh, a federal employees association that to collectively bargain with the government is impossible uh, because everything the government does is ostensibly controlled by the electorate, which, which is electoral, which is political. Yep. Well, uh, we've been talking about the Federalist Society uh, on the conservative side of the spectrum. Uh, tell us a bit about the American Constitution Society, which is sort of its counterpart. Sure. The, the American Constitution Society is the liberal counterpart, the more direct liberal counterpart to the Federalist Society. It uh, has a membership of law students and of uh, young lawyers who are liberals. It was reportedly created uh, in response to the success that the Federalist Society had at getting conservative lawyers and conservative legal thinking, legal thinking types together to consider the ramifications of judicial policy and to think through their judicial philosophies and to think through what they think the law should be. Uh, the, uh, the American Constitution Society, ACS, is heavily funded by the Soros Network, by the Open Society Foundations. Uh, it's also funded by the Sandler Foundation of uh, Herb and Marion Sandler. Uh, Notorious uh, for their role in the, the mortgage crisis some years back. Right. They, are, they, 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 have, they have been implicated in, uh, in contributing to that. Uh, also a lot of dark money. Uh, the, the, the dark money that the liberals complain about where a donor contributes to one of these donor-advised funds run by uh, Fidelity Investments, Vanguard, where a donor or a donor foundation can contribute to the donor-advised fund, and then the donor-advised fund passes the money on to whatever organization, like the American Constitution Society, uh, is, the ultimate, is the ultimate recipient, and this allows the donor an extra level of anonymity. Yep. What about unions? Have unions supported ACS? Uh, yep. They have received money from uh, the American Federation of Teachers for certain. Uh, and they have also been funded by liberal policy advocacy groups like NEO Philanthropy. Yep. Well, the, um, we, should, uh, we should start wrapping up, I think. But, the, the, but let's, uh, let's pull back again for the big picture here of uh, this is going to be one of uh, Donald Trump's greatest legacies, no matter what uh, exactly happens. And you made a point earlier about how the ages of uh, the people being nominated uh, and confirmed make a difference. A federal Article Three judge, which a circuit court of appeals judge, a district court judge, has life tenure under the Constitution. Uh, now they can retire and take senior status, but these judges who are being nominated will be ruling on cases for decades. And... One of the things that President Trump and the Federal Society guys helping him make these, these nominations have, uh, have done is they have focused on nominating relatively younger justices. Now, they've gotten into a little trouble because of this. Uh, they had to withdraw a district court nominee uh, who, had, who had not argued a case. Uh, but Trump's nominees, his first, his first batch of 10 from earlier this year— uh, their average age was 48, which was eight years younger than President Obama's first batch of nominees, which means that they'll be ruling, even if you lay aside that President Obama's 56-year-olds are now 64-year-olds, they'll be ruling on cases, they'll have eight more years on the bench than, Obama, than Obama's first batch will, will have had. 
Um, and then the, the other issue is, uh, is state judges. Um, the, the left, uh, through a group known as Justice at Stake, which has received money from some of the bigger liberal foundations, also the American Board of Trial Advocates, which that's the ambulance chasers lobby. Yes. That's the, the when, when you think of you know, nasty trial lawyers, that's those guys. Um, they are trying to change how states appoint judges to give more control to the legal industry, to the American Bar Association through what's known as merit selection, to give the, the lawyers' lobby more of an opportunity to, through ostensibly talking about qualifications, to veto uh, judges who may not comport with the three-to-one left living constitutionalist, more things for lawyers to interpret, more thing, more compliance for lawyers to do vision of the legal community. Yep. There also are uh, fights, you're talking about the state level, but of course, um, the kind of influence groups and the kind of heavy-duty left-wing donors that we uh, so often talk about on this show, uh, they are even getting down to the local level in the judicial selections, aren't they? Uh, not so much judicial, but certainly the law. The Democracy Alliance, which is the big convening of liberal donors, just to throw out some names, you have Rob McKay, who is the heir to the Taco Bell fortune. You have early Google multimillionaire David Desjardins, a couple of Hollywood, some Hollywood figures, Rob Reiner, Norman Lear, uh, obviously uh, finance billionaire George Soros again, his network. They're trying to elect very left-wing district attorneys in a lot of the left-wing cities. Uh, their big win thus far was in Philadelphia, where in the Democratic primary and in the general election, uh, Soros himself contributed uh, something in the order of $2 million to elect this city official. In an elect- for an election, which probably many candidates were lucky to get five figures uh, into their budget, maybe the beginnings of six figures. Yeah, not seven. Two, two, million, two million for a city election in a, state, in a city that is not New York is almost unprecedented, uh, especially for a non-mayoral election. Uh, but these district, the district attorneys have the ability to have a, a real serious impact on the policies of crime and punishment, uh, and that is making those policies more, more lenient, is a big is a, a big goal of of the Democracy Alliance and the groups that it has supported. Yep. Well, thank you so much. So we have in this show we have gone from the local level uh, to the highest court in the land. And if you want more information, there's always lots more at influencewatch.org. That's our show for this week. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher, know that we broadcast a live video version of this podcast at 10 a.m. on Thursdays on Facebook Live and on YouTube. And you can find our pages by searching Capital Research Center. If you're watching the video version, we encourage you to subscribe to the audio on your preferred podcast platform. See you next week.